nothing can separate. Nothing can separate. Even if I ran away, cause your love never fails. I know I still make mistakes, but you have new mercies for me every day. Your love never fails You stay the same through the ages Your love never changes There may be pain in the night But joy comes in the morning And when the oceans rage I don't have to be afraid I know that you love me Your love never fails The wind is strong The wind is strong and the water's deep I'm not alone here in these open seas Cause your love never fails is far too wide I thought I'd reach the other side Your love never fails You stay the same through the ages Your love never changes There may be pain in the night But joy comes in the morning
Jesus, thank you for um, just, I, I, we're all excited to see the world kind of moving on beyond these difficult months of uh, just sort of this pandemic reality. Lord, I pray for this church, Lord, that we would strengthen together as, a, as the body of Christ, Lord, that we would be just an agency of love for this community of the good news of Jesus to be told and shown through this church body, Lord. We pray as we uh, look into the scriptures now that you would um, open up our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have to speak to us. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us eyes to see you this morning. We thank you for the gospel, Lord, for your death and for your resurrection. And that is why we're here. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So um, this morning's sermon is going to be called Finding Purpose in Our Suffering. Uh, Suffering, as we know, this is a fact of life in this epoch of time. We know that if you have breath in your lungs, suffering is going to be a constant and looming presence in our life. And the only question really as human beings is not if we will suffer, but when, and then how are we going to respond? Or since it is a fact of life, another question we should be asking is, what do you expect when those times hit you? This sermon series we're in is called Life um, and uh, God and Our Expectations, and we're exploring different avenues of our human existence beneath God to say, are our expectations really truly formed by Scripture, by what Christianity has been teaching for the past 2,000 years, or are we being shaped and fashioned after other forces in our nation? Just to look at how the modern person, if you will, looks at suffering, um, we don't really know what to do with it, other than just, can we get it out as fast as possible? I mean, think of the billion-dollar industries of you know, uh, pharmaceutical industries and, and medicinal, you know, uh, uh, avenues to just, if they're suffering, how do we remove it as quick as possible and as fast as possible in our instantaneous society? I read an article on, in a large new paper. It was titled, No, a TED Talk Cannot Cure You of Depression. We wish it could. Has ever seen a TED Talk? Yeah, there you go. Of course, yeah. It's like 15 minutes long and you you receive this like profound, like, oh, my mind, everything's different now, and you realize it's actually not, you know, but for 15 minutes, it was just a very interesting. We wish in 15 minutes our lives could be instantly changed. We could leave behind something, and some new life-changing habit could be brought in 15 minutes, or we could be relieved of our suffering that quickly. Of course, we wish this, right? It's part, I think, of the American spirit today. Nevertheless, many recognize that sometimes... In suffering, people are actually uh, changed, actually for the better in some ways. It can happen, at least. Through great difficulty or hardship, some people actually learn things like humility, self-awareness. It causes suffering to be almost strangely mysterious because it actually can have the effect to grow us as people. For Buddhists, it almost becomes something enchanting. Almost they kind of long after because they realize that humility kind of comes almost, you know, it's expedited when life is hard or the opportunity for humility is there when life is difficult. 
Um, it's, it's readily, you know, uh, uh, fastly approaching can through the vehicle of suffering. But still, even if this is the case, there's something about our response as Americans in our Western world to want to put out suffering as quickly as possible out of our lives. Um, there's something about that that kind of makes sense because it kind of feels like a natural response. Even your body, when it responds to like a, you know, a pain, your brain is just like, boom, ow, that's different, that hurts, um, that shouldn't be there. Wake up, there's a pain happening, right? That's what our brains tell us. It's almost like in nature, there's this encoded thing that says, pain isn't, this isn't supposed to be there, right? No one in their right mind actually wants to suffer because we know that it doesn't feel like it really belongs in our life. So what do we do with this? How do we wrestle with this? In a New York Times uh, opinion article uh, from 2013, a, a man named, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Pico? Liar? He's a fellow from Chapman University. He wrote an article entitled, The Value of Suffering. And this is after sharing just a really dramatic story about the strongest man that he knew in his life being broken down to tears because of um, suffering of his family. The article ends like this. It says, the only thing worse than assuming you could get the better of suffering... The only thing worse than assuming you could get the better of suffering, I began to think, is imagining that you could do nothing in its wake. And the tear that I witnessed of that strong man in his life made me think that you could be strong enough to witness suffering and yet human enough not to pretend to be master of it. Sometimes it's those things we least understand that deserve our deepest trust isn't that what wonder and love uh, tells us too? In other words, if I could sum that up, suffering belongs to some of those mysterious corners of our existence. We don't quite understand it. Perhaps there's a, some benefits of our character that can come from it. And that's the most that we can do when we embrace it. But we leave the rest to mystery because ultimately we can't conquer this, right? We don't have, we're, we're powerless before it to some degree. As admirable as some of that may sound, Christianity, however, provides a much stronger, better, uh, stronger and better vision for suffering that greatly exceeds such thoughts because our lives actually have a greater end than just you. There's something bigger. Your life is just one part of something much larger. And to fully understand topics and issues like suffering, we have to look at it in light of God. So this morning, as we continue our sermon series, Life, God, and Our Expectations, we will be exploring how we can understand suffering in light of the good news of Jesus. Because missing from, and I could go on and on about the different modern you know, views and other religions and how they approach suffering, and um, in light of all those things, what's missing, however, is a theological understanding of suffering. That is suffering before God. How do we understand suffering before the God of the Bible? Because as we will see, suffering can really only be truly wrestled with when we understand this world is created by God who sent his son to this world to actually deal with pain and suffering. God is highly involved in this world. He is not absent. He is not cut off from it. He is here, even in this room. 
And he sent his son to deal with it because our instinct um, that we feel that says suffering doesn't belong, that's on to something. That instinct in us, there's some truth to that. And so we're going to walk through that. Now, to understand this, we have to look at the whole of Scripture, the whole story of Scripture, because from Genesis to Revelation, this is a single story in the Bible. So briefly speaking, Scripture tells us that at the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, pain and suffering were part of the curse of sin. It was not in God's original plan. After sin occurred, Eve was told childbirth, the process of life begetting life. God created life. We were to continue that work in the beginning of children. Now it would be painful. Adam was told that the ground would produce thorns now as he worked and greatly toiled in his sweat just to survive. And both in Adam and Eve, in their life, they would physically die. Because God's world is beautiful and perfect, and yet humanity invited suffering when we sinned. We'll talk about the nature of sin as well in a minute. Yet as the pages roll on and God's plan of redemption is enacted, as he begins pursuing humanity, he didn't leave us alone when we rebelled against him. He went after us like a good daddy does after his children. He began pursuing us. He chose a special group of people, the Jews, to bring about, as he told Abraham, a blessing to the entire world, Genesis 12. And it became clearer and clearer as you keep reading on in the story that suffering, which does not belong in this world, is something human beings could not officially overcome once and for all. Even though, if you look in every civilization, we've always tried, right? Every civilization has tried to overcome it, but we can't. Yet God knew that humanity's initial sin, which I believe can be summed up as pride. It was pride that thought, you know, we can figure out this life independent from God. Pride that we could define good and evil on our own terms, this has been the source of all ills of humanity's existence. As people throughout history have picked up on the reality that suffering can have the effect of humbling us, if you look at religions from all over the world, there's, that's kind of the conclusion, like suffering can bring us low, and perhaps humility is a good thing, yes, but Christianity goes even farther, something that you will not find in any other religion because it says that suffering, ultimately, it's not how we are saved from ourselves, but rather we worship a God that he himself suffered. That is something you won't find anywhere else. The scriptures teaches that God didn't just create this world, that we didn't just sin, that he didn't just abandoned us, but he went so far that the God of all things came to earth and actually suffered himself. 700 years before Jesus ever got here, Isaiah 53 uh, says this about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was coming to carry our griefs and our sorrows for us. He was coming to heal our wounds, to relieve us of our suffering by taking on our sin on his own shoulders. Christianity is clear that sin and suffering are really the same conversation. They go hand in hand. To deal with suffering once and for all, you must also deal with sin once and for all. And sometimes suffering happens almost blindly in this world, right? Sometimes suffering happens and appears at random. But at other times, if you want to be a little honest here, some of the suffering we go through in life is our fault. Or it's the fault of the sin of others that affect you in your life. Because this is a broken world and it goes deep. And a lot of the problems lie in our own hearts. Sin and suffering go hand in hand. And to remove one, we need to remove the other. We will remove the other. And someone was coming to do this as a substitution for us. According to Isaiah, a work that you and I can never do. We can't flush out our own sin. Maybe some of it, but not all of it, right? By the help of God, we can, as we're going to see, but not all of it will ever be flushed out in this life. We can't end our own suffering. Every nation and civilization, as we said, have dreamed of doing it and to say something like, well, there's good news. It can actually happen. And one day it will forever. It almost seems like good news that's too good to be true. Well, Jesus entered the scene, the message of the cross is such a unique message. I, I, this morning, you know, I get up super early on Sundays and I was just still just, just rocked, just thinking about these things. Uh, the message of the cross is so amazing because it's a brutal, honest display of the horrors of sin. Like, look at the suffering. If you were here on Good Friday this year, you heard us go in great detail about crucifixion. It was horrible. And that is the reality of sin. And just the ugliness was manifest in the cross, right? Um, death is in the world because of sin. The gospel of Jesus tells us that he died for us because in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. But yet Jesus did not just die a quick and painless death in his sleep. This is important to think about. Isaiah said he would be a man of sorrows which means it wasn't only in his death that he suffered. Jesus lived a life of suffering. He was well acquainted with grief, not just on the cross. It was the culmination of suffering on the cross, but he lived a life of suffering. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus indeed suffered throughout his whole life. This is from Hebrews chapter five. It says, during his earthly life, this is the God-man Jesus, right? Listen to this. Christ offered both requests and supplication with loud cries and tears. Jesus yelling out in cries and in tears. It sounds like one who is in peril. With yelling with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his devotion. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Say, Jesus learned obedience? Isn't he God in flesh? How does God learn something? The humility that Jesus placed himself into by taking on skin and bones just like you and I meant that when he suffered, his divine nature, it brought him through that suffering as a truly sinless human being. 
that God became his all in all and became more clear and more clear just how much he needed God the Father and the Holy Spirit's power to preserve him through his suffering that we can look at him and say, Jesus, uh, some translations even say that he was in that uh, five, it can be translated, he was perfected in his suffering. He proved his divinity in a way as he suffered because God's praise was always on his lips as he suffered. Through Jesus, the world was created. He was the author of life. Hebrews says that he was the word of God, or John says he was the word of God, that when he spoke all things into existence, that was through Christ. And the author of life witnessed death as he walked around in this world. Imagine the one who can perfectly love. I mean, the fullness of love was in Christ, and he witnessed hate in this world. Imagine the one who is God himself witnessing humans, even friends and family engulfed in such pride against God that they still, after all of these years after Adam and Eve, still imagine themselves to know better than God. Jesus saw sin still reigning in this world, and it's amazing because Jesus didn't only come down as God. We have to just remember he was a person just like you. He can relate to everything that you've gone through, but he was perfect. So this means that not only do we find Jesus weeping and being angry over sin, we see that numerous times in the Gospels, we find him even being tempted by sin. But he was tempted in such a way that we don't understand because he never gave in. He saw his temptation all the way through to the end and never gave in. That's the fullness of temptation that we don't understand, right? And it's in that way that Jesus showed us that he truly was the God-man. All of the suffering that he experienced culminated on the cross, and he did suffer immensely. It was not enough for him simply to die. He had to suffer if he was to take on the fullness of sin and death because not only was his suffering part of our salvation, but because it also carved out a path to begin walking in his image. Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, he rose three days later. Just to remind you of that article when she said, nobody can master suffering. Christianity says someone did, actually. Someone mastered suffering. Someone conquered suffering. Someone came back from the dead. And that is our Lord. And as he offers new life to his people today, those who repent of their sin, believe in him for eternal life, we are given promises that one day... He's on the return and renew this world. No more suffering or pain or dying or tears anymore. I'm going to preach on the end times later in the summer about those things. But yet, as we've talked about often here, people, uh, Christians who, who believe in Jesus and know that he conquered death, Christians still suffer. Christians still are dying today. So how does the cross and the sufferings and the resurrection of Christ, what does it mean for us today when we talk about suffering? What good news does it offer us in this life here and now when we are faced with suffering? I want you to think of the cross of Christ as like a bridge, okay? A bridge that if you're a Christian this morning, you're kind of always straddling on a bridge that connects you to, it gives you access to heaven while you are still on this earth, 
as your feet are grounded here on earth, the cross kind of bridges you to have access to things that are only available in heaven, the fullness of life that is found there, we can grab onto by the power of the Spirit today because the path of the cross is this. We as humans must decrease so he will increase. That's the life of heaven. That is the life of heaven. That we exist to mirror the glory of God in all that we do. And as John the Baptist said, after his disciples fled or ran after Jesus, and they were like, guys, you're, you, John, you're, all your people are leaving, going after Jesus. He goes, that's great, because I need to decrease, and he must increase. That's the spirit of what it means to truly be human. That's human flourishing. Sin and death only exist because in pride, we kicked against that. We thought as God's created creatures, we could figure out things on our own. We embraced our own self-importance, attributed our importance with, to almost, we, we you know, considered ourselves as almost like a, having divine importance, right? Um, but if we are to be truly human, we must embrace our status as created beings before God, and the rest of our lives will be spent learning that lesson from the Holy Spirit. That was a long introduction. We're going to finally dive into a passage of Scripture this morning because we're going to look at a time when the Apostle Paul was faced with suffering. And we're going to see how these things we just talked about was reflective in his life as he responded. How would Paul, the miracle worker, the man who actually the Spirit used to heal many people and do amazing things when he began suffering, how would he respond if you have a Bible, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where we're going to be at. I should have it on the screen. I should start doing that. I'm going to read this beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Paul speaking. But I must go on boasting. We'll talk about what he's boasting about. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on now to visions and revelations <coughs> of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may, be thinking, um, no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hear, hears from me. I've got to set this up a little bit here so you understand what he's talking about. Paul is writing a letter to a church in Corinth, which is um, in uh, the, the area of Greece. Um, this church, this is another letter to this church, um, had had people kind of infiltrate the church after Paul's absence and started making almost like um, we can call them personality-driven ministries, making, uh, uh, calling themselves apostles and, and, and doing things and preaching things and talking about themselves in ways that Jesus Christ never spoke of himself. And Paul got word of this because they claimed to be better and superior to Paul. And so Paul, caring as a father would for his spiritual children, writes this letter to try to 
help them to, to be reminded of what Paul did among them, what the other apostles had done among them, and what truly Jesus-centered ministry looks like. And so we're coming to the back end of his argument, which is a few chapters long, and he speaks of his own sufferings, as we will see, but before he mentions his sufferings, he mentions he's talking to third person about himself, as we'll see. He himself had received extraordinary visions, visions of heaven, Visions like Isaiah did or Moses or the other prophets in the Old Testament or uh, the Apostle John did in Revelation. I mean, unbelievable things that only really a handful of people have really ever seen, at least recorded in Scripture. Not everyone receives such extraordinary visions. Paul is just a human like you and I. He is a sinner in flesh saved by the grace of God. To receive such high and lofty visions could really tempt him to want to kind of puff out his chest and say like, yeah, you won't believe the vision that I saw. Let me tell you about how awesome. I must be special, guys. Like that was something that was a temptation for Paul to do, just like those other teachers that infiltrated the church, right? But he fought that. And we have a noise coming over there, and that's okay. And so verse 7 says this, to continue on. So to keep me from being conceited, to keep me from getting arrogant in these insane visions I was having, because of the suppressing greatness of this revelation, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now there's some arguments that says that Paul was actually losing his vision here. Maybe it was a physical ailment, we're not sure. Nevertheless, we we can't really figure it out, but we do know this, I wanna take a few minutes to, to hone in. To keep Paul humble, due to these extraordinary visions, a messenger of Satan was sent to harass him, to plague him, to harm him. Paul says, pay attention to this now. If you're asleep, like, shh, wait, slap yourself in the face, wake up, pay attention. Paul understood the role of this messenger of the spiritual attack from demonic forces as something keeping him humble. It seemed to serve as a reminder of his weaknesses. Yes, God was blessing him with extraordinary things, yet Paul, the miracle worker himself, was suffering. Nevertheless, Paul pleads with God three times that the messenger and the thorn in his flesh should be removed. Why three times? It can be said that Paul always seemed to imagine his life is so deeply connected and shared with Jesus's that here Paul was thinking of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the night before his arrest, he prayed that his cup of suffering might also be passed. He prayed three times that it might also be removed from him, and it was not. Jesus still had to undergo the suffering as well as big Paul. But why? Now, sometimes God does bring healing. If you're a Christian here and you've prayed for healing, you've seen these things happen, right? You've seen and heard the times doctors look at a report and they're just like, I I got nothing. This shouldn't be the case. It's just, but it is. We've heard these stories. The New Testament is also full of them. We believe here at Emmanuel that he can clearly do that. This happened in my family. I'm sure you've seen it in yours to some degree, but what about the times that it doesn't happen? And here, as we begin closing, we are reminded kind of of our introduction. Is it simply a mysterious force of suffering that we cannot conquer? 
that we only accept for its benefits of keeping us from being prideful or conceited, just to be humble? Is that the role of suffering? No. Something much more grander. Paul continues on in verse 9, but he said to me, God spoke to Paul after his prayer three times, remove this thorn in the flesh, this, this physical ailment, the suffering, remove it, God, remove it, God, remove it, God. And he says, no, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Martin Luther had a great phrase to kind of sum up some of what Paul is saying here. Martin Luther said this, God created the world out of nothing, And so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. We'll say it one more time. God created the world out of nothing, and so long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. Suffering reduces us to such lows in order that we may be aware that God and his grace is all we need in this life. That God and his grace is sufficient for us in the good times as well as the bad. How do we define God's grace? What does Paul mean when he says his grace is sufficient for him? Well, if you look in all the New Testament over and over again, whenever God's fingerprints are found in someone's life, it's referred to as a grace from God. Every activity that is involved in their life from God through his spirit is a grace as human beings. When the spirit of God fills you as a Christian, and gifts are given to you by his spirit. The word is, is charismata, and half of that word is charis, which is grace. Because anything God gives you in this life is from his grace. When we are brought low, 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 as Paul needed to be, we find in that low, low spot that we are weak, that we cannot do this life on our own, and that we need help. And God spoke to Paul saying, Paul, you must remember in this thorn it is in your flesh that my grace is sufficient for you. But the last part is so important. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We could translate it. My power is completed in weakness. What does that mean? How is this power made perfect in weakness? It's because we're getting emptied of self. Self is being flushed out of us when we are suffering. It is the effect of flushing you out of you because you realize that especially with a suffering that will not go away, that you were powerless before and only God can take it away. And since you are his son and his daughter, even if it appears to be something so harsh you're going through, you are learning what it means to rely solely on God and his power, just like Jesus had to do and not your own. The interesting passage that said Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered, that he was perfected in that way, as verse 9 says, when I'm spitting, it means I'm excited, so I'm spitting everywhere. Imagine if Jesus lived a life of royalty where he was pampered and was living in a mansion in isolation from the real world and he like died in his sleep and the Bible says, oh, he died for you. We'd be like, 
I don't know what that, like, what does that story do for me? That's not Jesus' story, right? He showed his perfection and divinity by suffering even though he never deserved it. And he learned reliance to God even though he was God through his humility to take on flesh and suffer like you and I. Lest we think too highly of ourselves, can we embrace that if Jesus suffered, that it may just be in our cards for us from time to time? Is it also a beautiful redemption of an evil in this world that God was using a messenger of Satan in Paul's life to change and to turn Paul towards God himself? Like Joseph said in Genesis 50 to his brothers, what you did was evil against me, but God meant your evil for good. What great hope is that, friends? That is, there is great evil in this world, God can turn it for his good purposes. And Paul realizes this. He knows that the sufferings of his Lord, he looks down at that thorn sticking out in his flesh that has not been removed, and then the extraordinary words that come after that. As all these teachers in Corinth are boasting of their own accomplishment, boasting of this and boasting of that, Paul says, I will gladly boast in how I am nothing. I will gladly boast in my weaknesses and in my sufferings for the sake of Christ in verse 10. Then I am content with the weaknesses and insults and hardships, for, then I am, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When Paul is weak, he is strong because the fullness of God will surface in the weak person. Miracles will work through him. We said that Jesus also was accused of this. He was healing people and saving people. He's hung on the cross. Somebody yelled out, you know, you saved all these people. Why don't you save yourself, Jesus? But he resisted because he knew that through the cross, the power of God would be shown as he suffered, died, and rose again. And as the Spirit is unleashed in this world, he works in your life, weakening you, in order that by the Spirit of Jesus you may be strengthened in him. So Paul says, if that's the case, then whatever it takes for the power of Christ to, to rest upon me, whatever it takes, then I am content with. As we close, I'm going to share a brief story from a book entitled Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. This story, I think, exemplifies all these things and sums us up really well. It's the story of an ordinary couple, just like you and I. Their names are Mark and Martha. This is a true story. Mark and Martha have four children. When Mark was 48 years old, his eye began to twitch uncontrollably. Within a month, he was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. An active family man, uh, 25 years into marriage, four beautiful children, they were all now faced with dire prospects of Mark's future. As Martha watched her husband quickly deteriorate, she began facing her own demons because she says, Martha's words, when Mark got sick, I fell into a black hole of despair. I didn't know how I was going to live through the pain of the coming days. I asked all my friends to pray for the fear of tomorrow, that it would not rob me of the joy of today because I was struggling. I wondered, who am I if I am not Mark's wife? Because in my eyes, I have put him before God. Yet through watching her husband's suffering, she began to experience the power of God surface in her weaknesses like never before. She says this, how I moved out of despair is a mystery. I had no awareness of being called forth, but yet I experienced a sense of resurrection. This is beautiful. 
we attempt to define ways to beat into our hearts the love and faithfulness of God in Christ. We planted our feet in the truth we understood, even though everything in our lives seemed otherwise. Mark sharing his perspective through eye motion and typing on a computer since he had been unable to speak at this point for eight years. He shared how he as a young man, when playing sports, he hated being benched. And when he was first diagnosed at 48, he told God, he said, I don't want to be benched. I got a lot of life ahead of me. And the voice of God clearly spoke to him saying, you have been on the sidelines for some time. It is just now that you are getting into the game. Eventually, on top of ALS, Mark was then diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. Sometimes I say I am unfairly suffering, says Mark. But only one who went through suffering unfairly was Jesus. His separation from the Father on the cross is far beyond anything I could ever experience. He then relates that the sweetness of his life with God in these years of suffering, if he was offered years um, more years of life. He said, I would never trade more years of life for the sweetness that I've experienced throughout these years of suffering. Martha concludes after Mark finally passed. She says this, we have found meaning and purpose and joy and growth and wholeness in our loss. How much I would have missed if I had opted out of this season. God has had so much to give me in the midst of it. I see how intense sorrow and intense sweetness are mingled together. Isn't that beautiful? The depth and richness of life has come in suffering. How much I have learned and how much sweeter my Lord Jesus is to me now. That, my friends, is what the gospel provides in the midst of suffering. The power of God was made complete in Mark and Martha's life. And it's made available to you and I today. I'm going to call our worship team to come up now as we pray. Jesus, we thank you that there is always hope in our life. And whether it's in this room this morning, if it's physical suffering, emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, whatever anyone in this room may be experiencing this morning, I pray that their eyes would be turned upon you, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, as we pray for healing and pray for deliverance from these things, as you often grant healing and deliverance to your saints, Lord, sometimes you have purposes in not doing so. And Lord, for those who can, yes and amen, those mysterious purposes, Lord, I pray that they would look to the gospel, look to your resurrection, and know that you are weeping with them. That you know what it's like to suffer. Lord, I pray that you could be our high priest this morning, bringing comfort to us by your spirit, Lord. Lord, all of our hope is wrapped up in your resurrection and your return that one day you will make all things new. Lord, I pray that as we wrestle with these hard things in our own life, that this community of people at Emmanuel Church, Lord, that we could reflect you to us, through us, Lord, that our neighbors and our friends and our family would see our responses to the hard, these hard things and say, where, where is this hope that you are clinging to? 
It doesn't make any sense when we say our Lord suffered for us and he knows what it feels like and he is with me even right now and he loves me. Lord, we thank you for those truths. So Lord, now I pray that um, if you were stirring a word in somebody's heart, Lord, that they need to respond to you this morning in, in prayer or crying out for help, Lord, that they would do so. Lord, as people will be available for prayer up front, pray that they would be willing to come forward and receive prayer. We love you, Jesus, so much. Once again, we are thankful for the gospel and for the resurrection, Lord. What hope would we have in this life without it? We love you, Jesus. These things we pray in your name, by the help and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. rise to our feet.
the morning. Jesus' name.